0: Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine.
1: Welcome, everybody. My name is Curl, and I'm one of the directors of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative, together with Dr. Kinghorn, who's going to kick off our 2019-20 academic year of uh, theology, medicine, and culture seminars. These seminars, for those there's a, a few of you who have probably been to these before, most of you probably have not. Um, they seek to uh, create a space here within the, the health center, but also in uh, between the health center and the divinity school and other parts of the university to consider the moral, spiritual, theological, uh, dimensions of the practice of medicine, and to uh, to take seriously uh, the way that different religious traditions um, uh, inform, inspire, challenge uh, the practices of medicine today. And um, I have here on the table a couple of things. One, there's a sign-up sheet that I think may be going around. If you're if you're not on our email list and want to hear about theology, medicine, and culture events, please sign up. Um, uh, and two, I, if anyone's interested in, uh, several people in the room are theology, medicine, and culture fellows. Um, if you're interested in that that program, which is a, a year or two of full time theological formation in the divinity school with others who are, have vocations to healthcare, there's a flyer here. And if you want a list of this fall's seminar talks, there's a, a, a flyer there as well. Finally, I just want to say a word of thanks to. The Trent Center, who has allowed us to come in here and sit on all the furniture mm-hmm. um, and has jointly supported this series um, uh, between the, the Divinity School and the Medical School and helped to provide this delicious food, which we get to enjoy. So, thank you, particularly Marjorie Miller, who makes it happen, um, and Jeff Baker, whose office is just around the corner. With that, I introduce Dr. Kinghorn, a uh, South Carolinian who uh then somehow went up to harvard medical school uh,
2: (laughs) somehow and
1: and they, they 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 probably missed they thought south carolina it was actually in south dakota and they thought that would be cool um and during uh medical school was wanting to dig into these questions around theology and medicine came to duke actually uh and did a Master's of Theological Studies, went back to Harvard, and then later came to Duke for psychiatry training and completed a doctorate in theology. And Warren has um, been a real leader in the, the world, uh, particularly the world of folks thinking about uh, mental health and uh, what good care is for those who are struggling with mental health issues. Um, also in the world of disabilities, Uh, disability and uh, the theology of that and a lot of other areas. Medical formation for students. I won't go on and on. He's a good friend and
2: looking forward to what he has to say. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. Thanks. Thanks to Farr and thanks to the Trent Center and I'll just echo everything that um, Far just said. Uh, And just thanks to you all for being here. Uh, This is really exciting to start a new year and um, I get to kick off our seminar series and in the future I'll be able to be here and just listen and and contribute, and so um, I look forward to this year together. Uh, and I'm also just grateful for the diversity of different uh, co- different folks we have in the room in terms of professional background and every other way. And so, so welcome. Um, for as far as said, uh, the TMC seminar series is primarily intended. as a set of conversations to think about how the world of healthcare uh, it, it can be in conversation with the world of of faith and especially Christian faith in practice, and and so I'm going to start that off today. Um, despite having a PowerPoint, I'm going to. Uh, I see this less as a kind of polished talk with the answers, and much as an kind of an invitation to conversation for those of you, uh, of all of us in the room over the year. And in my case, it's really trying to figure out what am I doing as a psychiatrist, and how what does it mean for my. Uh, theological formation and Christian commitments to inform the work that I do as a psychiatrist. So that's really the, the, the frame of what I'd like to talk about today. Um, I do kind of feel like I'm in uh, an episode of Stranger Things with like the lights flickering and the heat and like, you're, like deep in the bowels of an institution so like so if anybody like notices something that you know we need to be attentive to then just let me know. So um, so again, thanks for thanks for being here today. Uh, just to give a roadmap of where we're going to go, and uh, and we always go in these uh, in this series to um, one fifteen. But um, I know some of you may have to uh, split up earlier than that. So I'm going to plan to talk and end well before one o'clock, and then we'll have plenty of time for for Q and A. But if anybody needs to leave, I completely understand. That's how lunchtime meetings go. Um, First, I want to offer two images of mental illness, or you might say mental health challenges, and I'll use those uh, in this case um, synonymously. Um, And then I want to talk about uh, four trends within modern psychiatry that uh, have the possibility at least to be objectifying, Uh, and then to turn to Christian faith and talk about four broad Christian affirmations about being human. To then circle back to a few christian responses i can't actually remember what i said on five or not to, to these problematic trends within psychiatry and then to think about specifically in the context of medication prescribing which is often what i'm asked to do as a psychiatrist to think about like what if, what you know how do we how, what kind of context can we think about the work that we do and then for conversation so so for those of you that like lists this will be like a series of lists and you know we'll try to try to count down um, I want to, so first of all, two images of mental illness. Um, I want to start with a, a story, uh, and I want to make clear at the beginning, I'm always very uh, cautious about talking about my patient encounters in any public context. Um, this is itself a stock photo, this is not a photo of my actual patient whom I'll discuss. Um, I've changed the name of this patient, I've also changed a number of identifying details so that uh, her privacy and confidentiality is, is clear. But there's some truth to her story that I think is relevant to what we are talking about today. So with caution and with respect, I want to um, to tell you about a recent encounter that I had with a patient. And I work as a psychiatrist at the Durham VA. So this this was an encounter that happened in my outpatient uh, mental health clinic practice at the Durham VA. Ms. Young looked worn and disheveled and sad as she entered my office. I welcomed her and remarked that it had been well over a year since I had seen her. Her chart revealed that she'd canceled two appointments and no-showed for a third over the previous year, but she'd called me two weeks prior requesting an appointment, and she arrived on time today. Sitting on my couch after less than five seconds of silence, she began to cry. She noted that her anxiety had been uncontrollable recently and that she'd been awake the entire night before, unable to sleep. She noted that although she had continued to take an antidepressant medicine and a sleep aid, both prescribed by a primary care physician, she had run out of Adderall, a stimulant that she takes for adult attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and was having trouble concentrating at work. She requested to restart Adderall, as well as an additional medication that would provide immediate relief from anxiety. I asked her how things are going in her life, and she continues to cry. A corrections officer in a rural eastern North Carolina county, she says that her work is unsafe and overwhelming. She works in what she describes as a chronically understaffed women's unit of a county jail, and she feels constantly under threat both from inmates and from male officers who disrespect her and who occasionally make comments that she experiences as debasing and as sexual harassment. Recently, an inmate threatened her, and she felt powerless to respond. When she approached her supervisor about it, she says that he shrugged and told her that there was nothing he could do and to do her best. A trauma survivor herself, she worries for her own safety as well as for the safety of many of the other inmates in the unit uh, who are there for nonviolent offenses. She feels that all options are cut off for her. She says that other corrections officers are overwhelmed also and do not have her back. She can't afford to take sick days because she lives from paycheck to paycheck and she does not want to be fired. Her daughter's father is behind on child support and although she's able to pay her rent and her bills each month, she has no margin. She cannot get another job at an equivalent pay grade because her supervisor offers a bad reference to any prospective employer who calls. She does not feel that she can appeal to her county HR office because word would quickly get back to her supervisor and she would be punished. She doesn't trust that the system would work in a fair way. She does not know what to do. She does not think that she can continue to go back to work every day. This week she briefly considered suicide but then thought of her 8-year-old daughter and decided against it. One of the blessings and challenges of psychiatry is that experiences like this are not accidental or incidental to the clinical encounter. They're the reason for the clinical encounter. Uh, It's not as though Ms. Young came to me with diabetes or hypertension or a concerning breast lump or a worrisome mole or any other problem that we could then focus on and maybe in the context of managing that presenting problem, talk about what's going on in her life. Rather, quite to the contrary, how her life is going on the whole, which in her experience is badly, is why she's here to see me. And so we sit and look at each other. Having named her problems as anxiety and poor sleep and ADHD, and having called in sick to work today and driven 90 minutes to see me, she expects that I'll do, say, or prescribe something to help her to feel better. Um, I feel a welling up of helplessness. Medications may help some, but they're not going to heal the root of her problems. It'll be hard in her rural community, given everything that's going on in her life and with her commitments to find a good therapist, but we discussed the value of individual psychotherapy. We discussed social support and her family and her faith. We discussed the pros and cons of various ways to address her situation at work. And then, as I'm required to do, I turned to the electronic medical record, reviewed her medications, reviewed her recent labs, completed several clinical reminders, ended up by starting a process to match her with a therapist, by rescheduling her in my clinic as soon as I could, which in this case is several weeks out, and by prescribing not only her existing antidepressant and sleep medication, but also Adderall and a medication to help with anxiety. So that's one image of mental illness that's fresh in my experience from my work. Here's another image of Mental illness. This is the image that uh, any of you who are, are trainees and have you know worked in mental health contexts experience pretty quickly. Um, it's the image of mental illness that comes to us from the categories that we assign and the labels and diagnoses that we assign. In this case, our current chief diagnostic manual is the DSM, and now in its fifth edition. And here's an example of some of the criteria for ADHD, which is one of the diagnoses that Ms. Young carries. Now, in some ways, I find this image of mental illness much more comforting and much easier to deal with than the previous image that I just showed. Uh, Because this, I can get some control over. I can understand it, I can research it, I can do literature searches on it, I can feel confident that my field has something to offer. um, Mental illness, when it shows up, when it's imaged in this way, it's actually, I feel much less uh, helpless when I'm looking at this kind of image than I did when I was sitting in the room directly across the room from as And this image gives rise to lots of other kinds of images. It gives rise to epidemiological studies. So in this case, here's a uh, uh, SAMHSA report on the, and and, and these are very useful ways of understanding and thinking. They can help us to understand what we as a culture are experiencing. So given the way that the DSM defines major depressive episode, uh, we can then do studies and estimate that in 2017, uh, 13.1% of U.S. adults ages 18 to 25, which is the age range of many of you all, experienced a major depressive episode in that year. And uh, we can read that 7.1% of, um, of, of um, all American adults experienced a major depressive episode in that year. These are sobering statistics. It points to the reality of mental illness. Or we can look at older data, because we, we don't always have good data, about anxiety and see that overall 20% of uh, Americans exhibited some form of DSM diagnosable anxiety disorder in a given year, in this case in 2001 to 2003. And we can look at overall prevalence of mental illness, and this is where you get frequently cited statistics that in any given year, uh, 20, nearly 20% of American adults will uh, meet criteria for some form of mental illness, including 25.8% of uh, adults ages 18 to 25, which again is the age range of many, most you know university students and many of you in this room. And this, it can also give rise to sobering statistics like this. So this is the age-adjusted and population-size-adjusted suicide rate in the United States from 2001 to 2017, which shows that far from getting control over uh, mental illness or mental health challenges, at least as it expresses in deaths by suicide, we've actually been losing ground. The rate of suicide in the United States has been increasing by 1% to 2% a year uh, for the last 20 years. These are sobering statistics, but even this, and I, and I say this with um, with a great deal of of clarity. That when I when I see this, I'm very sobered to think like we're the, the suicide rate in the U S. is actually is actually um, increasing. But even this, when I when I look at this graph, I feel less helpless than I did when I was sitting right across the room mm-hmm. from Ms. Young. <coughs> I want to talk now about four trends in modern psychiatry that I think are actually ways that we uh, tend to help use as strategies to control our helplessness in uh, clinical care, in psychiatry, but also I think what applies to psychiatry in some way applies to the rest of health care. And I see this specifically in psychiatry. I think think it also uh, pertains to other mental health disciplines. So those of you that are mental health clinicians of other disciplines uh, can weigh in about your own experience of this and how it fits and how it doesn't. I also think that uh, these trends also apply in some way to the rest of medicine, uh, but that's, that's something for us to be, to be thinking about. But I see each of these strategies as ways to help um, bring some control over our own work. We wanna be helpful, we wanna help people, and yet we, uh, we turn to these as ways to, as ways to manage and regulate what we do. And that to me is, um, is something that I've had to learn to try to figure out how do I, myself as a clinician, uh, fit in relationship to this. So the first distancing and objectifying trend is individualism. I won't read this uh, in detail because I've put way too much, many words on this page, but this is the DSM's definition of mental disorder. Uh, it's important to know for anybody that's new to psychiatry that this definition doesn't actually count for very much in terms of like what gets in the DSM and what doesn't. Um, it n- has never really counted for very much, but it does, I think, help to uh, to, to display a certain imagination of like what do the people who created the DSM think that it's about and what do psychiatrists and mental health clinicians treat? And in this case, since, uh, at least since 1980, the DSM has been very clear that a mental disorder is a syndrome characterized by clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition or emotion regulation or behavior that then reflects a dysfunction in the psychological, biological, or developmental processes underlying mental functioning. There are several things that I'll be t- turning to in the course of this talk that relate to this, this kind of language, but you see here, first of all, primarily the language that mental disorders occur in individuals. And then secondaries we'll talk about that mental disorders somehow emerge from some underlying, that's the, the word, uh, dysfunction in an individual's uh, functioning. Here's I think uh, an, an image that um, I think displays this uh, in pretty stark terms. This is a drug ad that uh, uh, was published in the late 60s in a psychiatric journal. Um, And I owe this, uh, a couple of drug ads here that are older, and I owe them to a journalist named Catherine Sharp who's collected some of these images. And uh, could I just ask, what do you see in this image? So the title is, You Can't Set Her Free, But You Can Help Her Feel Less Anxious. What does anybody notice in this image? Meaning it's a woman. It's a woman, yeah. It's a young woman, a young white woman. Most drug ads show white women. Yeah. It's really interesting how the household objects, the dust, dust cleaner, and um, yeah, the room are kind of
0: framing the photo to make it look like, like a jail bar.
2: Yes, right. So she's in. She looks like she's in jail, but the bars of the jail are mops and brooms and yeah right and uh, there's a tricycle or a bicycle or tricycle in the back there's sponges she's at a sink um yeah so it's a pretty interesting image like she's in jail but the things that are jailing her are mops and brooms and household items and she's alone she's deeply alone and she she does look Anxious. so here's what the small print of this ad says i know you can't see it see it and i can hardly see it from here so this is this is a an ad that appeared in 1969 it was written to it's, it's it's appealing to to psychiatrists who at that point were almost entirely men uh so this is what the ad says you know this woman she's anxious tense irritable she's felt this way for months beset by the seemingly insurmountable problems of raising a young family and confined to the home most of the time. Her symptoms reflect a sense of inadequacy and isolation. Your reassurance and guidance may have helped some, but not enough. Cerex oxazepam cannot change her environment, of course, but it can help relieve anxiety, tension, agitation, and irritability, thus strengthening her ability to cope with day-to-day problems. And then it it keeps on going on. to say some things. So does anybody have thoughts about that approach, that way of marketing a medication for anxiety it's
1: you can't change the circumstances that create the anxiety so you just medicate it like it's you know you can't <coughs> they're saying you can't change her circumstances you can just make her feel better so it's very yeah. medical there's no desire to address social implications
2: yeah there's a real a real sense of, of um, that it's very focused on her experience as an individual reassurance and guidance have hit their limit and so then, um, not being able to change anything outside in in her social environment, there's then the need to then you know prescribe a medication for her internal experience. So this is a this isn't now rarely do, as these days are they blatantly the sexist? You know this was written in the late late 1960s, but you know as a psychiatrist I'm like what's going on here? You know so so absolutely I want to be very clear and I'll say this over and over again in in the in the talk. Um, Many forms of mental health challenge, including anxiety, absolutely are rooted and are uh, show up in the body. So this is not a way of debiologizing mental illness, but it is to say that mental illness always shows up in some kind of social context. So in this case, um, I would want to know like what's what's happening. In her life, in her relationships, in her um, own relationship to her own hopes and dreams for the future, in her relationship to her family, in her relationship to her husband, if she's married. If it, so, what's going on in, in in her in her in her life? So to not address that is actually to miss maybe the central. Think of what's happening with her persistent feelings of anxiety, and those of you know the history of psychopharmacology know that prescribing uh, benzodiazepines and other anxiety medicines to women in this time period was very common, and some of our um, you know very common medications now like Valium actually got started, really marketed to um, to, to women in in this kind of phase of life. <coughs> And I think here about a book that's written by a journalist that I would just recommend to any of you that are thinking about these questions. It's a little circumstantial in how it's written, and I do think, I would just say it caricatures psychiatry in a way that I don't recognize myself in his caricature of psychiatry in some ways, but this is a... He's a British journalist. He himself has lived with depression for a number of years, uh, sought treatment in the NHS in the UK, and got very biological treatment, mostly with medication, and then got in, went on this path of, of thinking about, what if we think about depression and anxiety especially? Not all forms of mental illness, but depression and anxiety, not primarily as endogenous biological um, uh, diseases, but as forms of disconnection. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, he has different chapters where he cites different uh, uh, spheres of research. He says, What if we think about uh, depression and anxiety as, in some way, a manifestation of disconnection from meaningful work, disconnection from other people, disconnection from meaningful values, disconnection from childhood trauma? Disconnection from status and respect, disconnection from the natural world, disconnection from a hopeful or secure future. Um, and what if we then think about the way of responding to depression and anxiety, not as only a matter of thinking about um, individual, individually prescribed treatments, but encouraging forms of reconnection that haven't been there before? What if, what if, what if we open ourselves to that? So that's one strategy I think that we often pursue in. Psychiatry, maybe in medicine more broadly. Here's another one. Here's another. I think it's the last uh, drug ad I'll show. But um, what do you see? And I, I would call this strategy dualism of self and symptoms. Um, what do you see here in this in this set of images? I know some of you are not as close as I am to this image, but what do you see? This is a, for those of you that know, like religious art, this is a triptych. It's meant to kind of tell a story from <laughs> left to right. Um, what do you see on the left here? Sad white woman. Yeah, a sad white woman. Yeah, exactly. Alone. alone. Exactly. She's alone. She's uh,
0: the,
2: the the like the camera is a little bit off angle. She's sort of looking somewhere in the distance. But there's it's helpful. Like so we have a frame. It's a green frame that's like specifically asking us to see uh, what's inside. And here, what are we ex- what are we asked to see here in this frame?
1: Depression.
2: To see depression. Yeah. So it's not it's not just seeing her in her fullest identity. It's see. Depression. So we're giving a, a diagnostic title that's um, that's here, and and underneath you may not be able to read it, but there's um, three quotes here. My sadness just won't go away. I don't have the energy to go out with friends. My constant worry is affecting my job, and uh, and these are all things that are are um, really concerning in terms of like you know if any of you are are thinking and feeling these things, then getting help, seeking help is absolutely indicated and, and necessary. They're also not inte- not not Uncommon things for people to feel at different times. So they're both common and also concerning statements. But we're asked to, in this case, see these statements as depression. And then um, we're asked to see the data. And here's, I'm not going to, this is not about marketing drugs. And there's a kind of highly um, simplistic way of depicting the way that this particular agent can then um, affect what we're asked to see here as depression. And then what do you see on the right? Joy. People. People. Arm wrestling. I'm not sure what's going on with that. You know, like, but you see the same woman who's now in a very different kind of situ- situation. So we're supposed to see the difference. So this is a kind of, this is, again, more blatant than some ads are, but this is the idea of, of uh, in large part, what we do in clinical care, what we do in medicine more broadly, especially what we do in psychiatry, is determined by what we see. And diagnoses are important not just because they name something that's supposed to be going on inside, but because they lead to certain pathways forward. And in this case, critical to, to, to uh, adopting a treatment plan of prescribing a certain antidepressant medication is to see this experience as something called depression. So, so clinical care is often a matter of training and ways of seeing that then lead to certain pathways forward. And that can be really positive or it can be really negative, depending on how wisely we're able to see uh, and this is not a matter of, you can't determine what's wise and what's not only by epidemiological science, because, uh, because that's not the criterion for what counts as a good diagnosis or not. So in this case, like, often in psychiatry, we, we tend to use diagnoses as a way to describe individual experience. But then diagnoses themselves in the DSM are defined usually as collections of experience that at least in theory can be separated from the person who's the bearer of that experience. And that can be really helpful. So uh, many of, of us in this room have been in mental health treatment. Um, many know what it's like to bear the stigma of mental health problems. Many know what it's like to live with depression and anxiety and bipolar disorder and other kinds of things. And when you're in the middle of a mental health crisis, often for somebody to say, listen, this is not you, This is your this is bipolar disorder, or this is panic disorder, or this is OCD or ADHD, can be very helpful because it helps to offloads shame and stigma, it helps to provide a sense of pathway forward, it helps to just provide a, a meaningful way to go on. And so this kind of distancing of self and symptoms is actually really constructive at certain times, you know, because it, it people instead of feeling just overwhelmed by experience, all of a sudden have a way of dealing with it. And then the clinician and the, and the patient together can join together to commonly... Confront these symptoms, right? It's like you know we're we're able to to join together to be kind of common allies against these symptoms, but um, but this can lead to problems also because what happens then when when over the course of months to years of treatment this way of speaking becomes so internal to the way that we think about our experience that um, that that the kind of unwanted and distressing experiences are are automatically kind of offloaded, not onto myself, onto myself and my body and how I relate to myself and my life, but onto a set of symptoms that are, by virtue of being symptoms, the subjects of medical expertise and control. So how, do, how is it that we can not permanently lead to a kind of a split of self and symptoms? And related to this is what I call dualism of self and body. And uh, here we get to um, the thought of this guy Rene Descartes, who in uh, in his kind of sent- two works especially, but especially in the, um, the Discourse on Method and Meditation on the First Philosophy, uh, posited a very strict kind of separation between uh, the soul and the mind, which he understood as the mental, spiritual, cognitive aspect of who we are, and the body, which he understood as space and extension and the physical aspect of who we are and emotions were in part located in the body for Descartes. Um, now you ask most psychiatrists, are you Cartesian? Do you, are you a dualist? And almost any psychiatrist, and there's plenty of the room would say no. Um, but Cartesianism is kind of a tricky thing. So on one hand, because it, it because it, it, the, the question here is always like, where in this relationship, where does, where does mental illness reside? So one way of being Cartesian is to say that mental illness doesn't reside in the body. It resides in the mind or the soul or in the spiritual part. And you get here, I'm going to skip over this because I'm I'm short on time, but um, you get here particular responses in the Christian world that tend to spiritualize mental illness or, or make mental illnesses if it's not something that's located in the body. So here's a, a telephone survey of 1,000 Americans in 2013 by Lifeway Research that asked people, among other things, an item. With Bible study and prayer alone, people with serious mental illness like depression, bipolar, and schizophrenia can overcome mental illness. And they asked, do you agree or disagree or not sure? And of the of the people in that survey who identified themselves as born again evangelical or fundamentalist Christians, 48 percent agreed with this statement that with Bible study and prayer alone, people with serious mental illness like depression, bipolar, and schizophrenia can overcome mental illness. Um, and among the whole whole group, including those folks, but everyone else, 35 percent agreed with that with that statement. Now, as a psychiatrist, I'm pretty alarmed by this. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm a I am a Christian. I believe that Bible study and prayer can be very helpful. I would encourage it on anybody who is called to do that, but I wouldn't say that Bible study and prayer alone are appropriate responses to schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or or depression. Um, But this is is one way that I think reflects a kind of Cartesian, in this case a kind of Christian Cartesian view of a separation of mind and, and body. But there's another way that I think is often less recognized, and it's what if instead of locating mental illness in the soul or the mind... We instead locate mental illness not in the kind of essential mind of the person or the essential selfhood of the person, but in the body. And in that case, you can get uh, images like this, which comes out of a kind of popular psychopharmacology text that equates uh, mental illness with certain states of affairs of the body. So you might say in this case, uh, there's a kind of a, a diagram of the postsynaptic um, uh uh, receptors showing serotonin, certain monoamine transporter systems, and you can get statements like depression just is a kind of dysregulation of different brain circuits that are uh, that are then reflected in certain forms of experience. But the the kind of core of what is the mental illness is what's happening in the body, um, and this is actually much more common among psychiatrists and among people in the medical world as a whole. And we think that in doing this, we're rejecting Cartesian thought splitting between mind and body. But actually what we're doing is just adopting the mirror image of it. We're actually continuing to be Cartesians. Because we're seeing mental illness as a bodily condition while and and that and that's still split apart from who we most centrally are as human beings. And so there's this way in which we can continue to be dualists without really appreciating or or knowing that. And the problem there is that is that um, often uh, Describing mental illness as a general category as brain illness, as it's often done in advocacy groups, is um, often done like splitting symptoms off from illness to reduce stigma. So it can be very helpful in, uh, when people are o- overwhelmed by depression or anxiety or other things for somebody to be able to say, this is not you, it's your body, it's your brain, it's a, it's a chemical imbalance. Um, and that can be very helpful. That can reduce shame, and I think that can be important. And I, and I engage in that as a clinician in, in, in many ways because I think that can be deeply important um, as, a, as a way of helping people to stand back from their experience. But there's downsides to that as well. So There have actually been some studies done on what happens when people adopt what's called what, what these particular researchers call biogenetic explanations of mental illness, which is the idea that mental illness resides in the body and originates in the body and from the body. It's a, it's a mixed picture. On one hand, there's, there's reduced blame uh, for having the mental illness, and there's less attribution of personal responsibility. Both of those, I'd argue, would, are arguably good things, especially when somebody's like really paralyzed by shame and by stigma and, and other things. But there's also, with this, increased pessimism about recovery. Mm-hmm. There's increased willingness to <clears> turn to a, a sense that biological treatments are necessary for recovery, and when other people were asked about their, their opinions, uh, other people are more likely to distance themselves from people if they perceive that mental illness originates in the body and brain, rather than in a certain kind of context of, of life and, and a certain life situation. So adopting biogenetic explanations, uh, like saying that this just is mental illness, may seem to be something that's gonna be un- a-, a good that's gonna decrease stigma, but actually it turns out it's a much more muddled picture than that. It might actually be harmful in some ways. That's a, that's a third um, uh, phenomenon. And then fourth um, would be what I call maybe two things together. One would be technicism and commodification. Um, and this is the idea that, uh, that, that uh, the, the role of the psychiatrist is to approach a certain condition like ADHD or depression or, or some other kind of condition that we can quantify. And to apply a certain kind of intervention that can be applied objectively by anybody with the sufficient training to be able to do it, and then to be able to then uh, observe observable, quantifiable changes in that condition, and then that of course then can be bought and sold, so it can be commodified. So you see this. This is basically the way that all psychopharmacology, almost all psychopharmacology research happens, and then most, and then a lot of psychotherapy research also follows this this kind of pattern of of um, psychiatric interventions as various forms of technique. Mm. So here's a couple of graphs from a very important study that was done recently at out of UNC and a number of other uh, things that was actually lauded as really a paradigm shift in psychiatry mm. because it was the first uh, medication that really was uh, uh, that was approved by the FDA for in this case, postpartum depression. Uh, this is a neurosteroid called brexanolone that was that originated out of the laboratory. So it wasn't found serendipitously. It originated because people were thinking about um, uh, molecular uh, biology in the context of depression, and uh, and so finally out of um, out of there were several randomized control studies that showed that an intravenous infusion of this uh, neurosteroid called brexanolone uh, with women with very severe postpartum depression. Over 60 hours of continuous intravenous infusion actually resulted in pretty dramatic decreases in uh, rates in symptoms of depression as measured by the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. Mm. Um, and this is a really significant finding, um, and it was lauded really as a, as a paradigm shift. It's, it's one of the first, it's among the very few new uh, medications that psychiatry has welcomed in the last 20 years. And uh, and it's and it's something that I think um, will kind of continue to have resonance in the in the field, um, but there's some asterisks to this as well. So in these in these graphs, um, you see in, in the right one the the blue line it shows the reduction of depression. Uh, so the, the zero is where where uh, these particular women in the study, uh, 104 total, uh, started out, and then the blue line shows the reduction in depression uh, symptoms over 60 hours. Um, and then how that continued for the 30 days afterward in the context of really severe postpartum depression, which is absolutely a terrible uh, condition. And it's a, it's a, it's a horrendous uh, sort of, of, um, of, of pattern of, of, of experience. And, and so it's the kind of thing that, that everybody wants to find helpful and time and quick uh, responses to. Um, in this case, there was responses. But the green line is the placebo here in this, in this study. So you see here that whereas the, the women in the treatment arm had about a 65% uh, reduction in symptoms. The the women who received placebo had about a fifty five percent reduction in symptoms. So it wasn't that all of the all all of the the response was medication related, and uh, and then and then also as you got closer to thirty days, you know there was a in this particular study not at all but in this study there was actually no difference at all between placebo and the active agent. Now this is the kind of thing that's lauded as a paradigm shift within psychiatry, but there's some there's some it's worth thinking about. Like, what are we doing when we kind of think about this as really the frontline treatment for, say, postpartum depression? And there was an op-ed that some of you may have seen in the New York Times that pointed out that this particular medication costs about twenty-five to $40,000 in addition to the cost of hospitalization for the 60 hours of continuous intravenous infusion. And uh, And so it's FDA approved, but it'll be approved with the expectation that insurance companies will pay that amount for the treatment. Now, I, you know, I mean, postpartum depression is a horrible and life-threatening thing. It's, it's terrible for both uh, uh, women who are experiencing it and also for, for children and for families. So, so I don't want to make a case that this shouldn't be offered. But there were are, are a couple of, of, um, of writers in the New York Times that kind of questioned, like, like w- how does this affect the way that our culture thinks about postpartum depression? Uh, not as only something that's happening in the brain, but also as something that is um, it, that happens more in cultures where women face less support after uh, birth, and there's fewer kinship networks, and also more of a focus on productivity and work, and more um, more stress around balancing different kinds of, of cultural demands. And these um, these writers uh, ended this um, ended this this op ed by saying, um, in, in an article, they, they talk about a Article that recently came out that uh, by a watchdog group that said that if this um, if brexanoline becomes the go-to fix for postpartum depression, the onus of treatment will remain where it's always been on individual mothers. Hardly a revolution in postpartum care. Mm. They say if insurers are willing to throw down tens of thousands of dollars for a mother's mental health, we can think of some alternatives that might have a better cost-benefit ratio, like six months paid leave, (laughs) or a live-in doula, and a private sleep training coach, or I mean, they're kind of you know being a little bit rhetorical, weekly massages and pelvic floor rehab sessions. These are these are things that that these are other ways that you could spend that amount of money. In the meantime, we feel that this medication is just a stopgap and yet another instance of pathologizing a very sane reaction to our insane culture. Mm-hmm. So again, like it's a it's it is a revolution in psychiatry, but what do we do with this? Let me spend just a few minutes, having spent more time than I like to talk about the problems, to think about what are some possible alternatives and, and solutions. So four Christian affirmations about being human, and here I kind of shift from what could be a kind of broad critique of psychiatry to think about how how might Christian faith uh, invite us into thinking about humanness in a different way. So first is that we are the the first is is that the first affirmation of Christian faith as it relates to healthcare is that we are deeply and fully known and loved by God as human beings. That's an affirmation and a truth that Christians affirm of what it means to be human. Uh, Psalm 139, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. This is the first. This is the, this is, this is the place to start for thinking in a Christian way about health care in general and also about mental health care. And I love the way that uh, the Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper has meditated on this goodness of creation, uh, Genesis 131, that God saw all that he had made and behold it was good. Um, Pieper says, what does it mean to, to think about love in that way? He says, love in this case connotates something the same as approval. Not approval for everything about the state of the world, but approval for the goodness of that one exists. And he says, it's, he says that love proclaims it's good that you exist. It's good that you're in this world. And that's where Christians start, is that it's good that you exist, and it's good that you're in this world. A second Christian affirmation is that we are living creatures of earth. I'll come back to this later, but we are uh, formed from dust, we are bodies, and so anything in modern bio, uh, biomedicine, and biological psychiatry that shows that mental illness somehow shows up in our bodies is absolutely consistent with the Christian affirmation of what it means to be, to be, and to live in bodies. And we're bodies who grow and who love in relationship. We're not bodies alone, but we are bodies who become ourselves, find ourselves in relationship. And this is central to uh, Christian affirmation about humanness, and it's also central to what we're finding in developmental psychology, that that becoming selves, becoming selves capable of interacting and and, uh, growing and engaging (coughs) in the world requires particular forms of relationship that itself then affects the form and shape and configuration of our bodies. The third is that we are wayfarers. We're those who are on a journey. Uh, we see this over and over again in scripture, the image of the, of the journey. We see in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, uh, we're asked to think of, to run with perseverance, the race that set out for us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And that word pioneer, archegos, is, is um, best translated as the one who goes before, the trailblazer, the forerunner in some ways. And I find this to be the central metaphor that helps to ground me as a clinician who's informed by Christian faith which is that as a physician, as a psychiatrist, my primary role is not to be a technician. It's not to satisfy clinical reminders. It's not to satisfy patient preference. It's not even primarily to reduce symptoms, although I do want to do that. That's absolutely something that I want to do. But it's to walk with those who are on a journey, to attend wayfarers who are on their way from God as creator to God as in some way their source and goal and and enjoy. That I walk alongside... Fellow wayfarers, and I'm constantly asking in that question, what's needed right now for the journey? Mm. So, that answer might be in the context of psychiatry, it might be medication, it might be a stimulant for ADHD, it might be uh, a benzodiazepine, it might be a course of psychotherapy, it also might be to get out of an abusive relationship. It might be to get support for housing. It might be to have access to secure and healthy food. It might be to have a community uh, supporting it around. It might mean a lot of different things, but that opens up our imagination of what counts as as helpful responses in psychiatry. And, uh, and, And fourth and briefly, as I said to many of you in my class this week, we're called ultimately not to control, to be in control over ourselves and of the world around us, although that's a good, it's good to have agency. But we're called to become deeper and greater lovers of God and of God's creatures, including the the, the humans that are around us. So as we think about what it means to be human, the question is to be human, to be a healthy human, is is to grow more deeply in love, in bonds of love for others, and not to grow to progressively greater levels of control over all aspects of ourselves, although control may be a necessary first start. So how might these Christian affirmations inform mental health treatment? Um, here I'm just going to just lay out a few thoughts and then c- conclude and then we'll have a conversation that hopefully will extend you know, further on this year for, for all of us. Um, well, first of all, I think instead of individualism, we need to have a much more relational view of what's happening in mental health more broadly. So here's a familiar kind of figure-ground uh, figure uh, illusion here. Um, you can see the vase or you can see the faces, but it's very difficult to see both at the same time. Um, in the same way, there's two ways of understanding mental health challenges. You can understand mental health challenges as uh, bodily problems, individual problems that show up in a relational or social context, or you can think of mental health challenges as social, relational, cultural problems that show up in, an, in a person's experience and that show up in... In, in, the, in the body. Both of those, it's useful in every mental health case to think about how those two perspectives apply and I think it's different in different contexts, but it's always useful to think about that. But it's very difficult to see both at the same time. To think of mental illness as an individual problem that shows up in a social context or as a social, relational, cultural problem that shows up in an individual context. But it affects then how we think about the nature of mental health challenges. So here, I didn't have time to make these pretty, but here's just some sketches of, like, different ways that, that we could think about this. So this, is, this would be kind of an inside-out understanding of mental illness. The idea, and this is what you, you typically see in psychiatric textbooks, the idea is that, that here's the human, here's the person, what's really important is the brain, um, in my lovely drawing here. And, uh, and the self is basically the, the brain and its body. And uh, and then outside of the self, you have these risk factors like psychological stress, relationships, culture, social determinants of health, nutrition, environment, and uh, and all those come in and they somehow break the brain. They, they they disrupt the neural circuits of the brain, and then out of that you get the the experience of mental disorder. So this is the this is the common way. And so it's natural then if you want to think about well, what does it mean to research or to to invest in treatments for mental illness you would naturally think like what kind of treatments are going to help unbreak the brain like and so that's really what the NIMH is doing mostly in its mm-hmm. research funding. but what if we think more broadly and I don't have the right way to depict this but what if we think more broadly I'm such a beautiful artist and what if we think what if we think more broadly about the self and the mind as exceeding the boundaries of the body the brain is not just the uh, regulative organ in the body, but it's the organ in some ways that regulates relationships and the relationship between the body and other bodies and the culture. So there's no reason to, to limit the mind uh, to an individual body, and especially to an individual brain. And what if we think of uh, all of these different stresses that we experience as in some ways internal to our, ourselves, our boundaries of self and mind? In that case, thinking about mental disorder leads to a very different form of imagination. It's less an inside-out view, and it's more an outside-in or, or a contextual relational view of mental health challenges. And so uh, uh, an experience like anxiety or depression might be uh, actually need to be thought of in a much broader way than, than primarily thinking about what's happening inside the body of the person who's experiencing the, 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 the distress. Um, so that's just a thought question. Another is to move from duality to unity, and is to really reclaim a biblical understanding of the relationship between body and experience. Um, here's a quote from Wendell Berry uh, that's in the city here, by his river in Kentucky. And he says, uh, he wrote in, a, in an essay called Christianity and the Survival of Creation in 1992. Um, he says, my mind, like most people's, has been deeply influenced by dualism. And I can see how dualistic minds deal with, in with case he's talking about Genesis 2-7, um, that, uh, God, uh, breathed, uh, that, that God breathed, that God breathed into the, the dust, and that became uh, the, the, the man became a living spirit. He says, in this case, um, the formula is not. And he's using gender-exclusive language here. Man equals body plus soul, but the formula is soul equals dust plus breath.
0: Hmm.
2: He says, according to this verse, God did not make a body and put a soul into it like a letter into an envelope. He formed man of dust. By breathing his breath into it, he made the dust live. Insofar as it lived, it was a soul. The dust formed as man and made to live did not embody a soul. It became a soul. Soul here refers to the whole creature. Humanity is thus presented to us in Adam, in Adam, not as a creature of two discrete parts temporarily glued together, but as a single mystery.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And here, Barry is very eloquently capturing the, the, the Hebrew Concept of nephesh this non-dualistic understanding of body of, of the living human body, that is our kind of uh, our um, kind of founding principle when we begin to think about human life as Christians. Uh, and I, I like to think of this that instead of thinking of like humans as a connection of body and soul, we're living bodies who are on a journey to God, drawn to God by desire, drawn by God by election and grace participation and so again that leads to this natural question like what's needed for the journey and then finally we can move from a a metaphor an image of fixing as if my role in the room with Ms. Young or with anyone else or for that matter my role at Divinity School is a matter of finding technical solutions to fix a broken machine to an image of accompaniment of attending to ask what's needed right now for the journey so, I'll leave you with um, three contexts now for thinking about the work of mental health care that I, I find helpful. That uh, I would just say might be ways to unthink some of this image of the, of especially the technical, commodified ways of thinking that we often fall into within uh, the clinical world more generally and also mental health care specifically. So, one is relationship. So, what would it mean to prescribe, to treat, to engage? With relationship primarily in view, not as an add-on in the social history, but as the center of who we are as human beings. Uh, and as there's obviously very complex when you begin to think about how different people engage in a relationship and are fitted for relationship. Um, but with, let's think about this specifically with respect to medications. Um, we often think that medications work because of the chemical that's within them. Some of you have seen this image before. Um, we talked about this at a conference a couple of years ago, but medications actually but part of the way that medications work is actually in and through relationship it's not because of the chemical in them so in every in every uh, pharmacological study you see a pretty significant placebo effect that tends to be uh, that, that is controlled out the point is When you do a randomized controlled trial, you're trying to see separation from placebo. So you see some degree of pharmacological efficacy. You then see, if if you do, if it's a positive study, you then see a a response rate that's attributed to sort of nonspecific placebo effects. And then you have some rate that is spontaneous recovery, often regression to the mean in the context of people are enrolled in studies when they're very ill or just suffering, and then there's often some spontaneous recovery. Well, what's in the placebo effect? Well, it's um, it's a combination of lots of different things: of expectation, patient expectations, prescriber expectations, therapist or clinician effects, and also the, the quality of the alliance between the therapist and the, the patient. But it turns out that this isn't only important for placebo effects. So, in some um, in a review that Calvin's worked on and try, trying to there's, there's actually an, an empirical literature that shows that up to twenty percent of the variants associated with the efficacy of, psychi- of, of antidepressant medications, especially in psychiatry, is actually attributable to the strength of the alliance between therapist and patient. So this is not just just the placebo effect, but it's also understanding what what helps medications to work. And it's in part, they work in and through relationship, not just through the medication that comes in. So what would it mean to organize clinical care systems really to prioritize relationship and also to think about the goal of treatment being uh, relationship, thinking about relationship as a central goal? Second would be agency. And I won't spend much time on this. Say I think that, that... uh, that uh, symptom reduction is, is an important start, but almost all, uh, especially depression and anxiety medications, use scales that focus on uh, immediate phenomenological symptoms, um, like uh, feelings of guilt or feelings of suicide or ability to sleep and other things. And, and so, so if a medication works, it's been shown to reduce those kinds of symptoms. But there's much more that's important to what it means to be human beyond reduction of symptoms. And including that is, what does it mean to be a person in the world who's able to to act, able to have agency, able to to be a seat of our action, able to pursue goals? And it turns out that, uh, that very few of our primary rating scales for things like depression and anxiety actually capture this very well at all. But what would it mean to think about medication prescribing and also other forms of treatment as primarily as as the first goal of treatment is actually to foster agency? I think that's a more consistently Christian approach to thinking about therapeutic goals. And then I'll, uh, in the interest of time, I'll skip this quote. But another would be would be story. Uh, We often, when we think objectively and we think about categorizing experience of ourselves or of our patients in the categories like the DSM or the numerical quanta on a rating scale, then what we lose is the fact that we are all narrative beings. We all actually live in and through different forms of story. And so what would it mean to take story seriously, to think narratively about our patients? And so one thing that I often do when I'm supervising residents and students is to say, in this write up that you're doing in the ER or in the clinic I'd like you not to use a single clinical term no jargon at all I'd like you just to talk about this person's experience using plain English and often that for for me that's a good exercise and often other people find that a really helpful exercise as well because it helps to uncenter our kind of clinical jargon and expertise and recenter the stories and narratives in which patients and ourselves are are living Thank you all very much. I appreciate you're uh, listening, and um, we have a few minutes for conversation. So thanks for being as, here.
1: As Dr. Kingard said at the outset, we know some folks have got to go right now. If you have a one p.m. thing, don't don't hesitate to do that if you need to. But we have we'll be here till one fifteen, and folks can ask questions. What, take Thanks. More
2: comments, Brendan. So I very much resonate with um, expanding the borders of the self and looking at society. And the way that it influences the mental health of the individual, but I, I kind of wonder if the wayfare model or accompaniment with the patient kind of falls into the same individualism in a sense. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if it could be helpful to think about society as a whole and walking along society, alongside society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and along with that, what is the role of the psychiatrist or the healthcare worker in general, and how we relate to the rest of society, and maybe. Uh, having something to say for the conditions that influence the individual. Yeah. Yeah, I don't see, I, 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 I can see how that would, uh, I can see how the Wayfair model would, I mean, it is a, as I've described it, it is an individual attending kind of model of one person walking alongside another. But uh, unlike um, a model of fixing a machine, it, it opens up into the relational world in which people are living and walking. So I would want that to be sort of part and parcel of what it means to, to walk together, uh, and so I don't. I don't want to. I wouldn't want to. Uh, I wouldn't want to to even admit that um, model of the wayfarer could be isolated from these larger social relational frames. I think when you think about walking, uh, the, the, I think the danger of thinking about um, social approaches to mental health is that you always just you just have to keep the the. You have to keep the the specific experience of individuals in mind, and not get into such a global approach that um, that those kind of specific mm-hmm. stories are, are lost. So it, it just I think it just has to be a, a balance. I appreciate the appreciate the corrective. I just I would want to see it both and always and never in the review board. Question here? it you? Mm-hmm. No, you hey, man. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, sorry, Gal.
2: So I've heard a lot about, but not actually read, Michael Pollan's new book, which talks about the idea of a lot of the research in using psychedelic medications or substances to have transcendental experiences, which then produce lasting psychological effects. And the interesting part, I think, is that the the relationship between the clinician and the patient is a little different. It's a little Mm -hmm. more like a guide. I'm, I'm curious what your
1: thoughts are on that. Its implications for what you're yeah
2: about. yeah I've never written on psychedelics and never have I haven't read Paul's book either I, I do know some about the literature especially around PTSD um, and um, I think it's I, I'm I'm trying to be um, I, I, I to be honest I don't know exactly what I think about uh, about therapeutic use of psychedelics more broadly I do think that that um, there's always a risk of using any substance to shortcut um, the kinds of experience that is, um, usually, uh, placed in the context of relationship and community and, um, and culture. So drugs of abuse are often ways of, of, um, of, of overriding, uh, really disruptive relational and cultural contexts. And psychedelics are not the same as, like, drugs of abuse, or can be drugs of abuse, but they're often different in sort of their, their, their quality, um, <clears throat> Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty pretty cautious, but I do think that there can be in some cases, um, uh, like in uh, studies, for example, of MDMA and PTSD, like when people are um, so deeply trapped in um, being uh, overwhelmed by experience and unable through traditional models of therapy to tr- to access a kind of openness sometimes in this case that kind of um guided process of um that is being now being researched around um around medications that can allow sort of increased openness of experience that then can serve as conduits to building kind of practices and habits that can help to lead to a more stable you know disposition i think i I i think Part of me wants to say that that would never be appropriate or listen and part of me wants to say that's actually um, a pretty interesting way of thinking about treatment as a whole. And so, so I'm I'm, I'm kind of open-minded, but to be honest, I haven't really thought through it in a way to have a firm conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd welcome thoughts from anyone about about that. Any one uh, um, of the responses that you offer
0: um, specifically um, giving the patients. In- in their, in their recovery of their illness or in their story. And um, I'm just thinking back to my inpatient psychiatry experience um, where um, I had a 50-year-old woman who had schizophrenia, and she was involuntarily hospitalized because she was making threats to her parents. She lived with her parents. She could no longer care for herself. And um, it was sort of in the context of medication non adherent. She wasn't taking any her closet pain. And um, I'm wondering in this context how to offer patients a sense of agency because she sort of, um, a couple of days was refusing her medications, but it seemed like it was her medications that was making her at least able to live civilly with her family members. And so... I just wonder what that looks like because um, in this situation it almost seems like the medication is well it's, it's therapeutically indicated but is it, is it actually good for her soul and um, you know does, should she have agency to, to say no mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah this happens all the time in psychiatry this is this is central to the question of and, and p- part of the question is um, who gets to decide what um, flourishing looks like, and what um, and what even agency looks like, and that's always a question that we have to be kind of open about. Um, in this case, so she she so she has she lives with schizophrenia. She's um, been able to live at home in relationship with her family on clozapine. Stopped taking clozapine and became more psychotic. Ended up in the hospital. Is that right? So in this case, I think. You know the, the, the broader question for her and for um, her family and for her community is like what does it mean for her to actually live the kind of life that she that she wants to live and that she's um, att- attempting to live. And so if when she's not taking clozapine, she actually has a more, much more restricted um, ability to engage in the kind of relationships that might or might not, but probably are important for her, than she does when she is. But, uh, but yet when she's taking the clozapine, she feels like she's being told what to do. And so that, I, I would, as, a theor- as a psychiatrist, I would want to work like how to, how, how could there be an alignment of her own sense of commitment to um, this medication, despite what can be pretty terrible side effects um, for the purpose of being able to live at home and maybe in the context of hospitalization, commitment to some kind of accountability with um, a treatment team or with her family or other things in a way that could then help to remind her of that when she's gets home and when she stops wants to stop taking the medication. And so I, I think it's it, it has to be a collaborative process. It's not something that um, it's not an either or. And I, I definitely think in, in her case, to I mean as you're describing it, to not take the medication actually led to a curtailment of, of her of her ability to act in the world. And so what seems to be an act of freedom is actually an act that leads to restriction of Agency, which is pretty consistent with human life as a whole, like it's kind of when Christians talk about sin, that's kind of what we're thinking about. I'm not saying she was sinning, but that this idea that we act in we act in freedom in a way that actually hurts us. And uh, and in, in her case, I think what does it mean to think about acting in a way that can lead to a progressive ability to to live and to act and to enjoy her community and to live without psychosis. That, I think that's the hard work of clinical care to to figure it, figure out what that looks like.
1: Yes. Either you guys, but... I just had a question about um, how uh, you talked about clinical care um, and more in the research world and I'm okay. wondering if, like any of these I saw some hints of, of uh, like risk factors and ways of like reframing the, the ideas that we're working with. I think that mm-hmm. often clinical care appeals to an evidence base and if there's no evidence base that is thinking like um, different right. terms than all like the, the DSM models and stuff you showed at the beginning. Yeah. Like a lot of the evidence looks a certain way and then it almost necessitates care that like or 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 encourages care that operates at an individual level or yes. or whatever yes. I wonder if you have any thoughts about like how how any research that is or or thoughts about how research could could um, look different it, it has to be so specific I feel like' as part of issue.
2: yeah uh, so I'm not uh, I'm not a I'm not an expert on exactly how Research, mental health research dollars are spent, but, um, and are you, are you, do you do mental health research or are you? Yeah. A, yeah.
1: I'm just starting a PhD
2: program. On a side. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, so how the, it, the DSM itself is a, is a document that in part is designed to facilitate clinical care, but also to facilitate psychiatric research. And, and in the case, and now, as you, as you know, um, the research world is largely moving away from the DSM to this new paradigm called the Research Domain Criteria RDOC. As you, as you know, this really, um, really focused on uh, mental illnesses as disorders of brain circuits. Mm-hmm. So the NIMH is even more, I think, reductionistic than the DSM is in terms of thinking about biological origins for mental illness. Even though they open it up, uh, even though they open also to behavior and to um, community things as well, and and the NIMH especially, as one of the funding agencies for mental health research, spends about somewhere around a billion dollars on biological research and about one hundred and fifty million dollars on services research. You know, and so so there's a huge um, there's a huge gap between funding for um, social um, and program and, and socially oriented interventions for mental illness and uh, bench research and work on kind of the, the the filling out the doc grid, the matrix. And so I think one, the, the, and and so the image of, the inside out image of mental illnesses is primarily disorders of brain circuit serves the interests of basic science researchers who, and a lot of Duke, who depend on NIMH and other grants to continue that work. And so I, I just want to say, I, I'm not opposed to that work being done. I think there can be really helpful things that are being discovered, but I'm um, very, doubtful that the RDoC will ever give us a kind of comprehensive understanding of mental illness, because you just have to bring in the larger relational and cultural questions. And so I think the, 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 the challenge for researchers, and, and this would be a challenge for you and for your lab and other things, is, is, um, is are in the ways that the grant structures are encouraging you to focus your questions, are you actually asking the questions that are important and relevant for the lived experience of people who live with mental health challenges? And my experience as a, as a non, non-empirical <coughs> researcher psychiatrist who's working on the ground is that there's often a huge disconnect between um, what gets presented in psychiatry grand rounds from um, bench researchers especially and from neuroscientists and from what's happening day to day in my outpatient clinic. And it's almost like there's two totally different language mm-hmm. games being spoken. And so, so I want to know more about how to, how to bridge those two. And I think it has to do with what kind of questions are being asked.
1: One more brief question from J2 and then Rob will wrap up.
0: Um, I think it was mentioned when we were talking about dualism the the fact that uh, a biomechanical attribution leads to more pessimism. Um, so I wanted to ask how you define um, shame and pessimism and what might be out there that would decrease both at the same time. Um, at the risk of oversimplifying it seems like a more biological like lower shame, increase pessimism, and then like a more personal view could increase shame and decrease
2: pessimism? So it was just like how do we get the bo- best of both worlds? Well, yeah, so a so quick answer since we're out of time to a really good question that deserves a longer answer. Um, I think that the fact that we, as uh, modern Westerners, um, Experience a reduction in shame when somebody says your um, your unwanted experience is not you; it's your body, is because we are so deeply formed in Cartesian ways of thinking, um, and and maybe other dualistic ways of thinking that um, that we just accept that that can be true, and we think of ourselves as separated from our bodies in some way, and so and and it also reflects. I think a um, this is a much longer conversation, but it reflects a. a a Pelagian understanding of sin and agency that, um, that, that we ought to be at every moment ought to be completely in control of ourselves and our actions and able to determine our course and pathway. And so if we can't do that, if we find ourselves that despite doing everything right, nothing, things are going terribly for us, then, um, then that's where this deep sense of shame comes in. Because like, if I ought to be able to, um, through hard work and through study and through, you know, self-care and through everything else, if I ought to be able to get myself under control and I can't get myself under control, then it must be that there's something that's deeply wrong with me because I'm just screwing up here. Um, And so when somebody comes along and says, well, actually, it's not you, it's your body, then that can be really powerful because it's like, okay, now I have a way to narrate why my experience is not going as I want it to. The, the deeper Christian truth and a more robust Christian theology of, of brokenness—I'm not—the word sin is complicated here—but brokenness would be that, that actually um, we just are the kind of creatures in the world that we live in, where despite doing the absolute best we can, we cannot stay in control, and uh, and that uh, and that that's just part of what it means to be human, and we are known and loved by God even there. And uh, that we are of invaluable intonesimal worth even there. And we're, and we're to be treated and to treat ourselves with dignity even there. And so that, that I think, approach to hum- humanness is where um, Christians can be helpful in thinking about reducing shame. It's a kind of deep acceptance of our goodness and our belovedness, even as we are unable to control ourselves and our situation. So we don't need somebody to say it's your body, not you, um, to, to affect that. We can, it's, it's more a sense of, like, of like you are, we, I am, beloved of God and uh, loved by God. And, and, and that's the place to start. So I think um, that avoids needing to have a dualistic understanding of body and soul to find a way to start to live without the without kind of um, disabling shame. So.
1: Two weeks from now, we'll be back right here with Lydia Dugdale, a uh, colleague of ours at uh, Yale University just now actually going to Columbia, um, who's uh, written quite a bit about uh, doctors attending to those with advanced illness and toward the end of life. Please join us for that and join me in thanking Dr. King.